Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 277th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Raising farm animals in your backyard is not just rewarding, it's actually easier than you think, especially if you have Kari Spencer to help get you prepared. Just text CHICKENS to 33444 or visit BackyardAnimals.com and you will receive our free webinar on how to raise chickens, goats, and more, promote biodiversity, and put your backyard animals to work. Today on our podcast, we have someone who traded in an unsatisfying job for a much more satisfying role in the food revolution. Let's talk to Joseph Martinez about his microgreens. Joseph is the co-founder of Arizona Microgreens, an urban farm in Phoenix which produces microgreens for restaurants, schools, and individuals throughout the state. Using a DIY approach for starting small and growing incrementally, Joseph and his brother built their startup from a 200-square-foot self-built greenhouse to a social enterprise model operating out of a 13,000-square-foot greenhouse. Initially focused on fine dining, Arizona Microgreens is now producing microgreens for farm-to-school programs, naturopathic clinics, and a much broader range of diverse customers. Welcome to the show today, Joseph. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Cool. So the beginning is kind of a little slippery for me. You know... There's there's a couple of different like beginning points for Arizona microgreens. I could think about you know 2013 when we first started, or maybe a couple of years earlier when I was dissatisfied with my job. But even going earlier back in high school, you know I would take breaks. I would take summer breaks and stuff like that, and go woofing on organic farms all around the world. And then and then even earlier than that, I remember when I was like I don't know 13, 14, I. There was this weird guy offering these uh, fruit tree permaculture workshops at a, at a coffee shop down the street from the house I grew up in. Oh my gosh, really? It was you, Greg. <laughs> it was a younger you. There um, you go. So that you know, there are a couple beginnings, and, and sometimes it, it's always it's always a pleasure to be asked to kind of tell the story because it 
it puts me back in a place where I'm not quite sure exactly where it began, you know, uh-huh. where the proverbial seeds were planted for the work that I'm doing today. Right. So I will just say briefly that I, I had an interest growing up in food and food production, but I didn't quite nail it down specifically what about food production was interesting to me. So mm-hmm. I started going woofing, which uh, for your listeners are probably aware already of woof, but say more worldwide about opportunities on organic farms or willing workers on organic farms. Tremendous organization for people. I mean, really diverse range of people. It's a great way to get involved with all aspects of food production. Mm-hmm. You could go volunteer in a farm in your state. You could travel out of the country. You could go with a, your whole family and go live on a farm for months to a year. Wow. You know, as a volunteer. Right. It's a fantastic organization. Would definitely recommend it to people to look it up. So, what I started doing in high school was going and volunteering on a bunch of different types of farms, everything from like a coffee plantation in Hawaii to kind of a more radical permaculture project in Belgium to more like indigenous driven projects in, in Ecuador. So I I was kind of, I felt insatiable my, my desire to learn about organic Mm -hmm. food production, but very unfocused, (laughs) extremely. (laughs) Well, you were young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just, I was just dabbling, but you know what? It was one of these unfortunate things where I had this tremendous but unfocused interest and it ended up just kind of by the time I got into college, it kind of went nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't do anything. I didn't study anything food related. And after college, I ended up getting an office job, Aye. a job where I sit in front of a computer all day and I'm, I'm, you know, working on press releases and organizing events that just mm-hmm. has nothing to do with all of that energy that I had the years prior right. related to food, organic food production. So I found myself in a little bit of a place of mourning, you know? Mm. And I think maybe this is something... Sadness? Yeah, some sadness. Because, And I think that maybe this is something your listeners can relate to when you have this tremendous passion, but it's but it's not focused enough. So it's just kind of this, this thing that it gets you up in the morning. It, right. it excites you to save up money and travel overseas and, and be a part of something or study something. But... You what don't do you do really with ha- it? Yeah, what do you do with it? Yeah. You don't have the thread. You don't have anything that pulls it together. So the second you come back home, you're right back there in that yeah. same job. Well, you know what What gets you there, and this is metaphorically speaking, of course, what gets you there is gray hair. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's the experience, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start experimenting. So when I was younger, I probably had 30 different jobs. Yeah. I mean, I, I lasted two minutes on one job. <laughs> I lasted two hours on one job, you know, and I'd last six months or two years on other jobs. But each one of those experiences for me was, yay, okay, I like that. Or, you know, on the two-minute one was in a phone, you know, one of those phone calling centers. And it was wow. like, oh, yeah, no, I can't do that. That's just not part of me. No. So, But each one of those experiences molds who we are. Sure, but then they're, they're at, at the same rate, there can be this tremendous self-disappointment that comes with wanting to be molded, wanted to become wanting to become this person mm-hmm. and then you come back home and you you still don't have it. You don't clearly know the next step. Okay, so I went and volunteered on organic farms in Europe, uh-huh. but now I come back to Arkansas and I'm just back at my old job. You know, it didn't translate. Yeah. I mean, that's something I connect with a lot with my peers. Mm-hmm. They make these tremendous efforts to go start something, be a part of a nonprofit, be part of something but it doesn't translate back into their life. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people get stuck there. 
you know. All right, so don't. so here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. How'd you get unstuck? What was the unstuck piece? Yeah, I think this is really the juicy part. For me, it happened quite unexpectedly. Long story short, essentially, <laughs> I knew that I wanted to get unstuck, but the problem was I knew that if I ever had any easy route, I would just take that. Mm-hmm. So what I had to do, and I'll be more specific, but what I essentially had to do was take every easy option out of the picture so that I had to start from scratch uh-huh. and get back to, okay, if, if I am actually starting from scratch and I want a little bit of integrity, what does that look like? So you know what? Basically, let's get really specific. This means I moved home. So I was living oh. in Istanbul in Turkey, tremendously fascinating city, had on paper what was a, what was a quite a good job and a good life situation but was extremely unhappy with it. Uh-huh. And and more so, I was unhappy with the trajectory and right. how looking at that trajectory, it had none of those elements of what the younger version of me was hmm. yearning for. Mm-hmm. The younger version of me was going out on all these these journeys and, and, and travels, looking for these pieces and insights and meeting these characters and individuals and I, I desperately wanted that to translate back into my life, to be incorporated into mm-hmm. my livelihood. And here I am sitting in this nice position and looking at the trajectory, and there's none of that. <laughs> and that, that was very disappointing to me. So what I essentially ended up doing was I moved home. I moved back to Phoenix, Arizona, uh-huh. where I had no friends. And basically no more connections. I hadn't been to that city in many years. Uh And I went to live out of a bedroom that my mom was nice enough to let me live in for a couple months. Uh You know, and and that's a great way of doing it. Take your ego all the way down. You know, go live in your mom's house, you know, (laughs) And, and start from zero and then and then rebuild it from there. Great. So then there's a spark that happened when you when you're there. Because mm-hmm. I've seen pictures of your first greenhouse. Yeah. Tat- you know, get me to that point. Yeah, so that that was very unexpected. So I moved I moved back home to Phoenix, but I, I didn't really know what the next step was going to be. I was there for a couple weeks, and then my brother and I had the opportunity. He was finishing up some woodworking projects. I was kind of helping him out. Mm-hmm. And then we found this this restaurant in town that had a little bit of space behind it. Oh. And we pitched to them this idea, maybe, I mean, super idealistic, naive, but that was way juicier than the trajectory I was on. We pitched to them <laughs> right. this, this naive idea, why don't we build a greenhouse behind your restaurant? Uh-huh. And, and they said, fine, why not? And both my brother and I, we have an interest in architecture and design as well as in food and food production. Right. So that was it. I mean, we really started from scratch. We, we drove my mom's car to to home depot and picked up you know like 110 dollars in supplies and that was right. a lot of money i mean my brother oh, yeah. david and i were, were you know looking under the the, the mattresses and stuff for quarters <laughs> and yeah it was it was 110 dollars was the amount of money we started out with great what month and year was that that was like middle of 2013 middle of 2013 yeah. and this is middle of 2017 that's right so four years later it's kind of it's amazing how much has happened in four years. Yeah. So tell me what's what's the picture look like now? So what we were able to build with that initial money was like a glorified shack, uh-huh. uh, two hundred square foot wood shack covered in basically like 
plastic wrap. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. and, uh, but you know what? It got it going. I mean, we watered everything by hand. We did not have anyone working for us. We were borrowing our mom's car and riding our bicycles to the greenhouse. Oh, man. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> Today, we're operating out of a 13,000-square-foot professionally built greenhouse. Mm-hmm. We work with all of the like leading produce distributors in the state of Arizona. Wow. We do a couple farmers markets. Uh-huh. We work with naturopathic clinics. We work with school districts to get our product um, into classrooms, K through 12 mm-hmm. classrooms. Uh, it's, it's pretty exciting, man. It's really come a long way from <laughs> a 200 square foot <laughs> shack <laughs> behind a vegan restaurant. Yeah. So, For our listeners that don't know, tell us what microgreens are. Yeah, so four years ago, I had no idea what microgreens were. I, my brother and I, we knew we wanted to build a greenhouse, and it was actually quite naive. Like, we didn't really know why Mm -hmm. or what exactly we were going to build, but we had this idea that, well, if you build a greenhouse, you can grow things inside. (laughs) That was all we had. Right. That was absolutely all we had. And we built the greenhouse. And, you know, the part of Phoenix that we were in, there's not that much going on. So you build a greenhouse, people are going to come around and start asking questions about it. So we had some chefs who came by and they said, oh, you guys are going to grow things for restaurants. And we said, "Uh, yeah, we we could do that. What do you guys want? And they said, don't grow lettuces. Right. Way too much of that right now. Right. Don't grow basil. We can get it real cheap and we don't need better basil. Mm -hmm. You could grow tomatoes, but... You'd have to really know what you were doing to grow yeah. good enough tomatoes that we'd buy them. Maybe you should try growing microgreens. <laughs> and I was just like, micro what? Like, what is that? And and they basically ticked off the list of all the things that I wanted to grow. So oh, nice. I felt very uh, d- diminished because I was like, oh, I, I really thought I was going to grow lettuces, basils, and tomatoes. Right. And here they are saying, don't do that. Right. But... But at least I wasn't stubborn enough that I didn't listen to them. And they said, grow microgreens. So I just, you know, I did what you can do nowadays. You just go online uh, and you spend a couple days. On by YouTube. The end, yeah, on every website you can find. Yeah. And by the end of the weekend, I mean, you know enough to get started. So essentially microgreens, you know, I had no idea when we first started what microgreens were. We built the greenhouse and some chefs came by. They saw that we were building the greenhouse and they said, don't grow lettuces, don't grow basils, don't grow tomatoes. What we really need here in Phoenix right now mm-hmm. are microgreens. I still had no idea what that was. Uh-huh. They said, just look it up, figure it out, get us some microgreens. Oh, nice. So, uh, you know, and that's what this is what I tell people all the time when they want to start growing mm-hmm. for markets. Mm-hmm. The best thing to do, a great place to start, is just contact your local chefs, see what they want you to grow, and then grow that. Absolutely. Really, I know. I, I mean, I'm not really in a position where I'm giving out advice to people, but I would absolutely pick that up as yeah. a piece of advice. Yeah, Greg, I can't tell you how many people I know who get so excited about growing food. They even raise the money, go into debt, build mm-hmm. a facility, and they grow something that it's just not needed. Nobody wants. Yeah, no or one it's wants. Super it. cheap, and you can't. I, you, what are you going to do? You can't convince people to eat lettuce. You can't cram yeah. it. You can't. <laughs> you can't push it into the market. And, well, what, um, and what you're looking for is a specialty crop. Specialty yeah. crops sell for more. Like so, a bag of microgreens per pound. What's what do you sell it for? Ish. I mean, it depends. It could be anywhere from twenty to sixty dollars per a pound. pound. 
yeah a pound now yeah. it does take a lot of inputs to grow absolutely a pound, you know absolutely. but um but more importantly you know more important than the dollar value is are you going to have a market for it because it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if it's high dollar value but there's no market for it right so is anyone going to buy locally produced saffron no <laughs> right <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah so don't go out and produce it don't just look at the most expensive items and say why don't i grow that so it sounds to me like the takeaway is you need to figure out what your buyers want. Exactly. And we, yeah. it was absolute blessing. We knew nothing about business. We had no mentors. And we were given the most important piece of the puzzle. It was just given to us in the beginning because these chefs came and they said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do, do exactly this and yeah. I will buy it. We're in business. We're in business before we even had a business. Best remember- way to, best, listeners, best way to start a business is be in business before you even start a business. You know, I have, this, have a market for it. Yeah, I had this funny moment where we just started growing these microgreens. And I'll tell you very shortly what they are. But we started growing them. And, and we had these chefs from a nearby fine dining restaurant. They, they were just, we thought they were hanging out with us in the greenhouse. Uh-huh. And then one week, this guy comes back and he goes, Hey, uh, Joseph, could you send me the invoice for that uh, order last week? And I said, the invoice for the, what? <laughs> and that's when I realized... We're in business. Yeah. I mean, really, I thought I was just hanging out. We were just clipping some product, putting it in bags and giving it to them. It really just it felt so natural. I was doing something that they needed. They Beautiful. needed me. And yeah. they were giving me, at first, they were you know repaying me in the feedback and the coaching. Yep. And then it came time to send them an invoice. <laughs> and then the next week, the guy said, hey, could you ship me over the availability? I said, avail what? Yeah, exactly. So you go step by step. So let me tell you real quickly what microgreens are. They're basically herbs and vegetables grown for just a few weeks. So for any gardener out there, you know, who started plants from seed, uh-huh. you know that you, you plant the seed, you mm-hmm. see them germinate, and they pop up, and usually they're going to open up the first two leaves. Right. Those, yeah, are, and those are often the leaves that are actually part of the seed itself. Right. So those are the cotyledon yes, leaves. Yes, perfect. So on a sunflower seed... The cotyledon leaves are actually the two halves of that seed. Mm -hmm. And then a few days later, you're going to start to notice a next set of leaves. These are called the true leaves developing just out of the middle. Now, a microgreen is harvested precisely at the stage where that set of true leaves is just starting to develop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can grow arugula microgreens, broccoli, cabbage, dill, fenugreek. Beets? Beets, cilantro, cilantro, onion, but also several different types of beets. Detroit dark red, Mm -hmm. bull's blood, Rubens. So it gets even it gets even deeper, you know, types of radishes. We grow about three different radishes. We grow four different mustards. Wow. So it doesn't get boring at Mm -hmm. all. So people you know, you might have gardeners say, Well, why would you do that? Why would you eat the plant before it fully develops? You know what? You're psychedelic. I was just going to ask you that. It's like, tell us about that. So there is a couple reasons for this. Back in the like 90s in the U.S., chefs were using microgreens as garnishes. So you'd Mm -hmm. go into a fine dining restaurant and they would harvest a little bit of micro radish and plate it. So this is your kind of like high, high end cuisine. Right. Where someone goes to a restaurant and there's just like a couple leaves on the plate and they eat it and they go... Oh, wow. The radish greens taste like radish. So very much this kind of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Uh moment where the snozberries taste like snozberries. 
So they, they have this tremendous flavor to them. A mm-hmm. very, very little bit has a ton of flavor. And it tastes exactly like the full-grown counterpart. So for fine dining chefs, ah. they like playing with this. You oh, can yes. have these two little leaves on a plate, and they taste like sunflower. And then you can kind of play with that with customers and, and developing a plate. So microgreens, the reason we harvest them when they're so young, you know, it started out in the 90s. Fine dining chefs were using them as a garnish because uh-huh. they have tremendously powerful flavors. And they look quite nice the way that they can be plated on a dish. And you'll also see this in, in like Japanese and Korean cuisine. Oh, yeah. If you've ever been to Japan or mm-hmm. Korea, they, they put microgreens on like everything, especially on raw fish. It's quite... Uh, Flavorful, powerful. Uh-huh. But the other thing that started to happen was that rumors were starting to circulate that they might be more nutritious. I was going to say there's a nutrient density yeah, thing nutrient going on density, here, right? Yeah. And then out of these rumors, the USDA, starting in the 2000s, they started actually doing, you know, uh, trials, basically mm-hmm. testing. Oh. Well, if you grow these plants in these ways or if you grow them over in these ways, how is that going to affect the nutrient density of these mm-hmm. plants? And you know, they were not paid by any big microgreen grower or anything like that. I talked to some of the researchers, actually, and they said that they were expecting that there would be little to no nutrient uh, properties in, in these plants at all. They thought uh-huh. they would be pretty empty nutritionally and were totally um, surprised ah. to find that sometimes they were 20 or 40 times more nutrient dense in certain wow. uh, chemical compounds uh-huh. than the full grown counterpart. So out of this research that was now being legitimized by the USDA and other uh, academic research partners in the U.S., it started to happen globally. You see researchers in Europe, even in Asia, doing really scientific evidence-based work and finding that microgreens are, in fact, more nutrient-dense. And furthermore, you got nutritionists who in the game, and they were studying it and finding that microgreens were also more basically bioavailable the nutrients were more bioavailable so we could digest them and absorb them more readily right uh so this is pretty crazy so what this sets up in kind of the early 2000s we're getting around like 2012 now is that microgreens are are on the one hand a perfect product Mm -hmm. for the fine dining industry and they're also a perfect product for people who are interested in the most nutrient-dense produce they can find. And Mm -hmm. these customer segments are very much alive and well Mm -hmm. in certain parts of the country. We just happen to be Arizona microgreens at one of those places. So this is one of those right places at the right time and then keeping your ears open Uh and and people telling you what they need and you following that. So is there any chance, because you've been at this now for four years, is there any chance that you drove that industry and you've drove the, you drove the education around it? In some ways, but I, I think in a huge respect, Greg, we are indebted to the people, especially in the Arizona area, for mm-hmm. you know, decades before us who were really out there making the case for local foods. Mm-hmm. I have such an easy job now. I walk into <laughs> a restaurant and I say, hey, I'm Joseph. I'm with Arizona Microgreens. And the chef goes, I know who you guys are. I've been waiting to meet you. Nice. I want to meet you. I nice. want to use local food. Yeah. Let's just figure it out. So, I mean, Greg, I inherited this absolute joy where all I have to do is just work out the logistics, mm-hmm. work out the availability, look at the menu. I mean, the second I meet a chef here, they're so receptive. And it wasn't that way. I mean, even like 10 years ago, 15 right. years ago, people, yeah. they didn't really see the value in local. Right. Now, a lot of them, they see it. They're so busy. 
they just they got to get to work and they got to say okay well let's figure this out where can we put it on the menu how can we make it work let's make it work let's yeah. make something happen yeah. so people are just very proactive ready to to make something happen and and we're really happy to be a part of that yeah cool yeah cool so i i noticed in your bio there's something up here that says a social enterprise model mm-hmm. tell me about what that is cuz that's really fascinating yeah, so for me, a lot of what I found unsatisfactory about the work I was doing prior to this, you know, my, my office job, was that it wasn't consistent with my ideas of, of right livelihood, mm-hmm. really. You know, I, I feel really grateful that the work I do, I feel is much more integrity with that, um, in integrity with that. And essentially, my understanding of the social enterprise model it's actually quite easily transferable to anyone in food production. You know, we're in a privileged position that we can have um, quite naturally a positive environmental, social, and economic impact. Uh-huh. You know, if we're out there producing eyeglasses, it's a little bit harder. You, know, <laughs> yeah, you start having to set up auxiliary networks or giving a percentage of your money away Mm -hmm. and for arizona microgreens it's incorporated into how we operate Mm -hmm. so basically at the greenhouse every aspect of our production we do anything we can to mitigate our negative environmental impact so Mm. if i have runoff water that runoff water is being used either with uh, fruit trees or with kind of a native plant habitat and Mm -hmm. producing a pollinator garden we contribute we basically are leasing this greenhouse space and that lease goes to a community school that's run by a public school district wow they're doing tremendous work i mean when we have giant compost piles and our compost we do not reuse it in our production because of a number of reasons but essentially we found that we could have a greater impact by actually being a way a source of donating that to community garden groups and the leftover soil exactly so we we actually produce inorganic soil and then we harvest our microgreens and that leftover soil gets thrown in a big compost pile Mm -hmm. greg our compost pile is like 30 cubic yards oh my god massive and it is the most beautiful compost you've ever seen it doesn't smell Mm -hmm. it's Tremendous. I mean, you stick your hands into this stuff and you pull them out. It's dark, rich, amazing soil. And we donate that to uh, nonprofits that are doing community gardens on formerly vacant lots throughout South Phoenix, which is the part of town that we operate in. Right. Greg, it's amazing. It's like a little little bubble. I mean, it's such a bubble, the greenhouse, but it's such a happy place for a lot of people. You know, we really do our best to treat our employees great. It's been amazing. You know, I get feedback from some of our employees about how their life, their lifestyle changes the longer they work with us. Nice. Healthier work habits. We're all very much into kind of being very physically active, eating very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a tremendous thing. You know, microgreens, they make up about like 50, 60% of my diet, Greg. Oh, nice. And it's something really cool. I mean, you can probably connect with this as well. When you grow that much of your own food, Mm -hmm. you know, I personally grow like 60% of what I eat. And I personally wow. know the farmers who grow the rest. Yeah. There's a great feeling in that. And mm-hmm. it's amazing to have, it's a small crew, but to have a couple employees and some interns and volunteers and people who join us with that. And it's beautiful to see them get healthier the longer they work with us. Right. And that's the dream. You know, the former work I had, the former job, I felt, and I'm sure your listeners can relate to this if you have this kind of job. Every day you go there, you die a little bit inside. Mm. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and what we've created at Arizona Microgreens is an environment where every day you go there, you get healthier, you feel stronger. It's like rehabilitation. That is, that is truly epic. So maybe that's social enterprise for me. It's, it's oh, thinking good. about yeah. doing a for-profit endeavor that rehabilitates your life and invites other people to join in that, rehabilitates communities, has a positive impact, and doesn't just fade away if the funding dries up. Right. You know, if funding channel dries up for Arizona Microgreens, we find a new one or we create a new one. Right. And we've been growing every month. We grow, we grow, we grow. But it's, it's a sustainable growth. It's a slow and steady growth. Mm-hmm. So I know you do this really cool project here, and I have yet to be able to uh, dive in and eat some of your food from it. But what is contemplative gastronomy? Wow. So this, for me, Greg, this is such an unexpected moment. I'll be very brief with the story. A big upside to the work that I do, Greg, is that I have this mandatory vacation that I have to take during the summertime. We slow down right. so much mm-hmm. that, you know, we work, you know, seven days a week the rest of the year, mm-hmm. but then we have a good summer pause. So last summer, I went to Iceland and I went there actually to work with an artist. I wanted to do something unrelated to my work, mm-hmm. just kind of pull my head out of my little bubble and do something very different. So I met this artist and Greg, it was amazing. It was like when you meet those people who just excite tons of energy in you. And Mm -hmm. I felt like we were just, you know, having endless conversations that just lasted days. And then it dawned on me, actually, that is what was happening. Because in Iceland, in the middle of July, the sun doesn't go down. Right. (laughs) So you go out to the bar and you're out for drinks. And then all of a sudden they just come around and they have a pot of coffee. You know? (laughs) Right. It's nonstop. And... And for someone like me and for someone like you, you can have two, three, four days of this and right. then you're going to crash. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you haven't slept in four days, you just crash. And so it was fun. I'm in this small town, Sædisfjörður, there in, in Iceland, working with this artist. But, Greg, what starts happening is that I'm not sleeping anymore. The sun not setting. I, I just... Mm-hmm. I can't fall asleep. It messes people, with your circadian rhythm. Exactly. Yeah. And people say, oh, just get an eye mask or just get blockout curtains. It's not as simple as that. It's like your body knows that the sun is up and it's out there. Oh, yeah. So I couldn't fall asleep. So what really aggravated me, though, Greg, was not the sleeplessness, but I no longer felt present. I no longer felt awake and in Mm -hmm. the present moment so what i started doing was basically doing like diy mindfulness practices oh i I would jump into freezing cold water i would go on these very long runs i would do these different meditation techniques because Mm -hmm. i was losing my grip on reality and talk to any mental health professional they'll tell you that sleeplessness oh yeah you know it 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 results in kind of mental issues and this is what was coming up for me. And one day I walked into a restaurant and I said, why don't I try to do a mindfulness exercise with food? So I wrote down five words on a piece of paper. I always bring a piece of Greg can see I, I have a piece of paper yeah. and a pen with me right now. By the way, always, everybody, Joseph's in studio today. Yeah. If you haven't figured that out. And so I brought this piece of paper and I wrote five words. I said, look, smell, remember, taste, feel. Oh. And I said, for every bite of this meal... I will do these five steps for about five seconds each. So they drop the first plate 
and I take up my fork and I put it in the in the bite and I bring it closer and I just look at it for five seconds. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. And then I bring it closer and I smell. And I just notice the smells. And then I let myself kind of drift and say, are there any memories that are coming up for me? And then I finally take a bite. And then I feel the food as it enters my body, as it's kind of like going down my throat. Is, is it sour? Or is there, like, does it, is there a fattiness? It goes straight to my mm-hmm. stomach. It's really literally becoming part of me. So checking in with that before going to the next bite. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing this process and Greg... I laughed out loud twice during this meal. I, obviously, I was eating by myself uh-huh. in this restaurant. I really laughed out loud. Oh, my gosh. What did they think of you? Oh, yeah. Definitely people are... Come on. I'm definitely making a scene. I'm sitting there, like, <laughs> smelling my food and taking an epically long time. Right. And then, and then I actually... There was a moment, Greg, where I was really moved to tears. I'm sitting in this restaurant mm. in Sædisfjörður in Iceland just crying, <laughs> eating my food and crying. But... What happened, Greg, is I walked out of that restaurant, and for the first time in a month of being in Iceland, I felt awake and alive and mm. present again. It was like magic. I, I'll never forget looking up at the, at the fjord and seeing this little pink light in the sky and the snow on top of the fjord mountains and the village, and I just walked around that night. Of course, it's bright out and it's midnight. Right. I walk around the village and every detail came out in just startling beauty. I mean, I, I was like running my hand over the railing and smelling the grass. And I wasn't high at all, Greg. Uh-huh. <laughs> I felt just very much awake. So what we did is I came back to Phoenix. I partnered with a chef and we started this pop-up dining series. Um, it fits perfectly with Arizona microgreens. We basically source food from other local farms, our right. kind of peers, our partners, mm-hmm. so other organic farms. And we put together these stunning, amazing, like six-course meals. And we invite guests to go through this guided mindfulness process with the food. Wow. So it's not really like directly Arizona microgreens. You know, we don't do it there at the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. It's basically a project that we offer now kind of out in the world. You're going to do it again this this coming yeah, year? Yeah, so we're going to do it this fall, and we're going to partner. We haven't yet announced it, but we're going to partner with a uh, like a local hotel, and they have uh, a tremendous restaurant, and the chef there is very passionate about local food. His wife is very much into mindfulness practices. So again, it's kind of like going back to when Arizona Microgreens started. Mm-hmm. We were at this great intersection of kind of fine dining and wellness, and, and in a way, this is kind of just a variation off of that. You have a lot of yeah. these fine dining chefs. They're passionate about local food. And then you have a lot of these wellness people, wellness customers, who are also... Passionate about their health. They're, they're passionate about their health, but they're also interested in this thing called mindfulness, you know? Mm, and it's, mm-hmm. been, it's been an incredible kind of unexpected turn in my journey to be able to facilitate that and offer that with people. It's really Yay. beautiful. I hope I hope you can join. I hope your listeners can come come to Scottsdale, come to Phoenix, and join us for one of these dinners. They're called Savor S A V O R, and the kind of second line, the byline, I guess, is contemplative gastronomy. Nice ArizonaMicrogreens.com forward slash Savor. You can find more about it there. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Yeah, so just very briefly, I think one of the things that we failed at pretty early on was making a plan for our next steps forward. Oh, we yeah. we basically 
when we were first initially outgrowing our 200 square foot plate uh, space or 200 square foot greenhouse, we made a plan to partner up with a nonprofit that was doing a project on a formerly vacant lot. So you're going to see a lot of entrepreneurs out there related to food systems that mm-hmm. don't have any money or capital or resources. So they end up moving into these temporary mm-hmm. use spaces. I used to be a huge fan of these spaces. Until you talk to me. And then, <laughs> and then I actually met uh, Greg Peterson, your, your host, and, and I told him, I was very excited. I was like, Greg said, what's the next step for you guys? Said, oh, Greg, we're moving into this. We're going to build a greenhouse on this temporary space. And Greg was so unenthusiastic. He was so just like, oh, yeah, yeah okay. I'm kind of <laughs> disappointed. And, and I was really deflated. And I, I really thought Sorry about that. that, no, no, no. I thought that I was like, I was very disappointed by Greg's reaction. I wanted him to be more excited about it. And, and I thought that Greg was wrong. This was going to be a huge success. Mm-hmm. This is the important thing to do. This is the right step. And it all fell through. <laughs> I'm not going to say Greg was right because Greg didn't, he didn't, he just expressed his honest reaction yeah. to it. That was like, oh. Well, and the background there, mm. the background there is trying to do, you know, do something on a property that you really don't have control over. And, Absolutely. And since then, that particular property has gone away. In a tremendously short period of time. In a tremendously short So just to give some background for your viewers very briefly, it was a temporary use space that essentially was extremely exciting to be a part of, but there was a line there that said you could basically be evicted in 90 days notice. Yep. Uh, which potentially they, even 30 days in certain circumstances. Which, which is actually, what they actually got was 30 days. It's exactly what they did. Yeah. And we were looking to invest or drop a lot of investment in yeah. that space. We would have lost everything. But... The lesson that I learned was to not burn bridges and keep your ears open. And what I did was I, when it was falling through, I just picked up the phone and I called Greg and I said, Hey buddy, this thing has fallen through. I remember your kind of lack of enthusiasm about it. I wonder if there's something else that you had in mind. Uh Immediately, Greg puts us in touch with some other option. I mean, it was a matter of like a week. Oh, that's right. It was fast. Very fast. And we were walking into an empty greenhouse and Greg said, why build your own greenhouse on land that you don't control when there's one sitting there empty that you guys could walk into and actually probably contribute a lot and, yeah. and turn into something? And it's not going away anytime soon. So I think the lesson there is, you know, people are going to give you advice. Maybe you have to still fail, but but don't burn bridges and, and turn around yeah. and, and see that you're you're in a network of people who they, they do want to support you. Yeah. Keep well, your ears open. And here's the thing. Here's, the th- here's one of my lessons for you is that you you listened you took yeah. coaching and you listened so be coachable be coachable yeah. absolutely so what do you consider your biggest success probably my relationship with my brother it's tremendous that i mean we've definitely we fought a lot in the early days of arizona microgreens but we persisted and mm-hmm. we both have improved as communicators we've improved as brothers we've improved as business partners and that is fundamental if you're doing a business and you have a partner mm-hmm work on nurturing that relationship yeah build a great product build a great service but build a great relationship with your team with your team yeah. absolutely excellent excellent what drives you craig this is this is this is wonderful that for me it's actually i've fallen in love completely fallen in love with the product that we have mm-hmm. with microgreens and mm-hmm. i didn't at first when i first started it was i wanted a certain type of lifestyle you know and i was building that it was 
I know what I don't want. I don't want the office job. I don't want the desk. So it was a lifestyle thing. Right. And then kind of solved that. And then I wasn't quite sure what was driving me anymore. And I was very lucky that I, every day I walk into the greenhouse, Greg, I go over there and I touch the microgreens and I look <laughs> at them and I eat them. I eat them every day for lunch. I had them this morning before I came here for the podcast. Nice. I'm just deeply in love with this product. Like I said, it's 60% of my diet. I find a way that it can support mindfulness practices, that it can go into farm to school programs. I feel very lucky that I am just head over heels in love with this product. And I, and I love seeing that. I love seeing growers who are just obsessed with their artichokes, you know, fishermen yeah. who just have deepest respect for the, the fish that they, yeah. that they catch. Yeah. And, and that's what drives me right now. This just love for microgreens and wanting to see them impact more and more people, school kids, naturopathic yeah. clinics, athletes everyone everyone i cool. even brought greg some microgreens oh, yes. today thank you i will gladly eat them i will gladly eat them so if you could recommend one book for our listeners what would it be and why yeah so this book is called mindfulness and meaningful work the second line is explorations in right livelihood it's a collection of essays edited by this guy claude whitmire just a fantastic book it's a great you don't have to read the whole thing you can just pick and choose pieces of it yeah yeah but it, it has some really great essays and i think for anyone look you don't have to be starting your own business i mean you're, you're a stay-at-home mom or you're uh, uh you're considering dropping out of school or you're retiring this question of right livelihood will always be with you mm -hmm. and and it's a beautiful selection of essays uh mindfulness and meaningful work and it was pretty illuminating for me perfect yeah excellent 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 so what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Along the lines of what we were talking about before about being coachable, mm -hmm. really learn how to listen on a deep, deep, deep level. One of the first kind of, I don't know, you call it like principles or points in, in permaculture is this observe and interact. Yep. And I feel like I've taken some permaculture classes and this one is always skipped over because everyone shows up and they want to they wanna walk out with their charts and their diagrams. Oh, we're going to put fruit trees here and swales here and make berms. No one wants to go to a workshop, a weekend-long workshop, and all they do is observe and interact. But mm -hmm. I can tell you, this for me is like such a sacred space yeah. of learning on a deep level how to just observe and interact and, and I would just, my advice or my suggestion would be for people to let that come alive for them. What does that mean right now in their life? What would that mean for to observe and interact, be a place of, of deep presence and profound impact on who they are? Mm -hmm. um, go out in your lawn. Go out in <laughs> your, your just front yard. It's just lawn. And just sit there and just observe. Feel the heat coming up from the grass. Look at your sprinkler system as it turns on and splashes yeah. you in the face. And is, is this what I want? What is this? What is yeah. this about? Or go in the, in, the, in the garden you've planted and just watch the insects. It's, it's amazing how much we can learn just from that stage. Yeah. Before you're going to change anything, just learn to observe and interact. I do it, I do it every day. It's, it's, it's absolutely critical for me. Very contemplative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Joseph. Thank you, Greg. It's Absolutely. been a pleasure. Hey, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, so we have a little bit of a social media presence, much to my chagrin. So you can go Facebook, Arizona Microgreens, Instagram, Arizona Microgreens, have a look at what we do, all aspects of what we do. Uh -huh. And then, of course, our website, ArizonaMicrogreens.com. 
shoot us an email, send us a message on Facebook, comment on one of our photos, reach out. I would love to hear what you guys are doing. If you're growing microgreens, I would love to hear what you're doing. I look forward to connecting with you guys. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash AZ microgreens. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Raising farm animals in your backyard is not just rewarding, it's actually easier than you think, especially if you have Kari Spencer to help get you prepared. Just text chickens to 33444 or visit backyardanimals.com and you will receive our free webinar on how to raise chickens, goats, and more, promote biodiversity, and put your backyard animals to work. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.